Uh, we'll be looking at verses 43 uh, to 48 this morning. Now, as you turn there, let me just say we've been going through a sermon series on Jesus' own sermon on the Mount. And for the last couple of weeks, we examined the various topics that Jesus took on that touches on the kind of righteousness, Jesus would say, that is to be found in the kingdom of God that exceeds that of the world. And so far, we looked at the topic of anger. Uh, We looked at the topic of divorce and marriage, uh, taking oaths or speaking with integrity. And we also looked at the principle of non-retaliation. And today, uh, we get to what many would say the climax of these series of passages where Jesus talks about how we are to deal with our enemies. And uh, let me just say that this passage is so relevant to us today because I'm sure all of us are keenly aware of the fact that we live in a divisive society. Pastor Aaron prayed for that just a moment earlier. We are divided along political and ideological lines, and many of us are wondering what the future holds for us. We're asking the question of how we are going to move forward as a society as one when there seems to be no way in which this divide that exists in our society can be bridged. And as Pastor Aaron prayed, this is not just a theoretical exercise that is reserved for political scientists and sociologists. I'm willing to bet, even though I've only been at Grace for the last couple of months, that there are those in our very own community that we look at and disagree with just about everything that they stand for when it comes to hot-button issues in our popular discourse. And I'm sure that some of us may be experiencing this even in our very own family. And so the question is, what are we going to do with this divide? And generally speaking, I see really two ways in which we typically respond Uh, to this divide that exists in our community and even in our families. The first way that I see many of us respond is by burying our head in the sand and simply pretending that this divide does not exist. So we say, you know what? Let's stay away from this. These are divisive issues. Let's never bring it up because what good will that do? I'm I'm only going to end up uh, being hurt in my own feelings and end up hurting their feelings. And so, you know, let's just focus on the things that we agree on and let's just move on. And some people say, well, that's what we should be doing at church as well. Let's not bring up anything that's divisive and just focus on the things that we can agree on. And to some degree, this approach might be helpful. Right, because there is much that we can agree on, and those are important things that we need to be discussing and be talking about. But the problem is, I'm sure all of you are aware that it's getting harder and harder to ignore the issues that tend to divide us, especially nowadays. You can't turn on the TV. You can't open up your laptop. You can't unlock your phone without being confronted by these divisive issues that exist in our society. Because the media that we consume that shapes us so much has become so partisan that it's nearly impossible and borderline arrogant to plug our ears and simply say, I'm going to stay above the fray. That's impossible. Now, the other way that I see many of us respond is by to being perhaps overly optimistic and even a bit naive. 
We say, you know what? If we could all just kind of come to our senses and talk things through, we can have an optimistic future in which we can bridge the divide and find common ground and we'll be able to move forward. And while such intention might be admirable, certainly is, I think what we've seen in the world is that the world has been so successful in compartmentalizing people into various camps and groups that to work to meet in the middle, if you will, by talking it out, again, though it may be an honorable task, we realize it's going to be a hard, long road that doesn't seem realistic in the short term. So what are we to do? I think what today's passage will show us is that there's actually another way forward. The way in which we can move forward as a society, as a community, as a family, even as we are in the midst of deep disagreement over issues that may be fundamental or even non-negotiables to us. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. So having said that, let me read uh, this morning's passage for us. Again, it's Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Now, this passage is astounding because it presents a vision of society in which simultaneously it is utterly realistic about the fact that there seems to be an unbridgeable divide that can exist between people groups whether it be along ideological lines political lines or ethnic and racial lines but at the same time it is utterly hopeful about the kind of love that one can have for people that are utterly different from them and it's all found in the command love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, what are we going to do with this command? See, it's easy enough to throw this around as a cliche, but it's a whole other thing to actually put it into practice. And what I want to present to you this morning is that there is no time that is more crucial than now for the church to be obedient to to this explicit command that is given by our Lord Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning is take this remarkable command and examine it under three headings. First, we're going to examine what this command actually says. And secondly, we're going to take a look at why we are to obey this command. And lastly, we'll we'll take a look at how we can obey this command what this command says, why we are to obey it, and how we can obey it. First, what does this command say? For this point, let's take a look at verses 43 to 44. 
Now, <clears throat> Jesus, as he's done over and over again in the chapter, he makes his point by first correcting a distorted teaching that the people received from the religious authorities of that day. And so he begins by saying, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let's, let me stop there. Now, this was what was taught to the people at the time, that you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. And most likely where the religious leaders kind of got this command was from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Let me read it for you. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge, listen to this, against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so listening to this, and Jesus goes on to correct uh, the teaching of the religious authorities. But before we go on to the correction, we have to kind of linger in uh, this first verse here for a little bit. Because, see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, often get a bad rap in Christian circles. Right? So, you know, when you hear kind of popular teaching, they're often portrayed as caricatures of uh, ungodly people. But it's important for us to understand where they're coming from because by understanding a little bit about their, own, uh, about their heart, we get an insight to our own hearts as well. Because see, if you look at the Old Testament, which was, mind you, all that, the, all, uh, the entirety of the Bible that the people had at the time, uh, if you look at the Old Testament, we see God's hatred towards evil and his willingness to have his people, the Israelites of the time, serve as a conduit of justice towards the evil nations around Israel. So taking that into consideration, it's understandable, you might think, that the Jewish teachers would look at God's command to love their neighbor and think that that excludes ones that they'd consider to be their enemies. But see, here's where the Pharisees were dead wrong in their interpretation of Leviticus 19, verse 18. And the error came from the fact that they only looked at the immediate context of the passage. So what they did was they took a very specific verse, took it out of context, and generalized it as a rule for everybody else to follow. Because if you were to look at the Old Testament as a whole, what the Pharisees should have known was that the command to love their neighbor could not just be towards the Israelites, people that were like them, but by necessity, according to the commands that were given to them, had to include their enemies. So one quick example, if you were to look at Exodus chapter 23, verse four to five, it says this, if you come across your enemies, ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. I mean, I have to tell you, there are numerous passages that are like this, where God specifically commands his people to love their enemies the way they would love themselves, to care for their enemies the way they would care for their own. So here was the heart of the error of the religious teachers of the time. They failed to define the meaning of who their neighbors were the way God meant them to be defined. And so what Jesus does here is he makes it clear that the scope of who they were to consider to be their neighbor included their hated enemies. And the same call for us remains true as a church. See, verse 44 
Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. We'll get to the second part of that uh, verse in a second. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Now, how are we to love our enemies? To love them as if they were our neighbor. To love them as if we were loving ourselves. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, directly quoting Proverbs chapter 25, passage that the Pharisees should have paid attention to, says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, the imagery of burning coals uh, represented God's presence in the Old Testament. So Paul is using this to say, by loving your enemies and taking care of them as uh, the way you would care for yourself, what you are doing is you are bringing nothing less than the presence of God into their lives through your charity towards them. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Because he goes on to say this. He says, love your enemies, but also pray for those who persecute you. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's not enough that you perhaps begrudgingly take care of the physical needs of those who are different from you, take care of the needs who may hate you, who you may consider to be your enemy. He says, you can't stop there if you want the kind of righteousness that exists within my kingdom. What you need to do is, even in the face of their active opposition, the call is to go before God in prayer for them. Now, isn't that crazy? In the midst of persecution, who thinks to pray for the ones who are putting them in danger? And yet, this is exactly what Jesus does. This is exactly what Jesus tells us to do. And Jesus exemplifies it in his own life, doesn't he? Right? He, we see him being beaten, tortured, mocked, and jeered by the crowd. In the midst of all of that, what does Jesus do? He looks to the Father and asks, not for his deliverance, but even in the midst of his agony, he asks for the deliverance of the crowd. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's not just Jesus. Remember Stephen the deacon in Acts chapter 7? As he is being pelted with stones, what does he do? He cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Well, let me ask you a question. What if this was the kind of love that our church was known for? What if this was the kind of love that the church in our country was known for? What if our world today was filled with Christians who followed Jesus in this way? Right, that is the call for the church. Now, <clears throat> at this point, you might be asking, well, what does that mean for me practically? Does that mean, you know, I, I stay silent in the face of injustice? Do I stay silent in the face of such rampant immorality that exists in our world? Absolutely not. 
Again, you have to look at the Bible as a whole. We see over and over in the prophets that we had these courageous uh, people that were speaking out against the injustices and the immorality that they saw in society. Right? We see even going back to the example of Stephen himself. How did he end up being pelted with stones in the first place? He was calling out the hypocrisy. He was rebuking the religious authorities of the time by presenting the gospel And that's what put him in the situation where he had to ask for their deliverance in the first place. So the call is no, we absolutely speak out against injustice, but what is the thing that changes? What changes is the posture in which we speak out. What changes is the heart behind the speaking out that Jesus is addressing here. We've been told time and time again, going through this sermon series, that Jesus is addressing the matters of the heart. And so the question is, if you were serious about this kind of enemy love, how would we speak out against the injustice that we see in others? I love how practical this command is. Pray. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this German theologian um, who was famous for his opposition to the Nazi regime and his various writings, said this about the command. I love the way he puts this. He says, this is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. See, it's so practical, why? Because when you have an enemy, you're most likely not in a place where you can easily come together in the same space and have the kind of frank, gentle, and honest conversation that's needed to be had for true reconciliation to happen. Now, that would be ideal, but oftentimes, if you're being persecuted, if you're in opposition to one another, Oftentimes that is impossible, but the one thing that you can do, and perhaps the most powerful tool that you have in your belt that is available for all Christians at all times is to bring your enemies before, the God's, th- before God's throne of grace and to plead on their behalf, not for their destruction, but for them to be presented before the Lord. See, the command is to love indiscriminately. And Jesus spells out what that looks like for us. It's to pray. Not just for the ones that you love, not just for the ones that you connect with, but the ones that you consider to be your enemy. When was the last time you prayed for your enemies? Not for them to change their mind, not for them to come to their senses so that they can be on your side, but for their own welfare. That is a command. Now, why does Jesus give this command? Why are we to obey it? Jesus actually gives two reasons. One reason is given positively, and one reason is given negatively. So the positive reason is so that we become more like the Father. And second reason, put it negatively, is to not be like the world. Right, so let's take a look at the first reason here. We see this in verse 45, where it says, so that, right, love your enemies, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then Jesus says it again down in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. It says that we are to love our enemies so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is just as children naturally resemble their parents, we are to resemble our Father God. Right? That's the point that Jesus is making. And loving our enemies, we'll get to there and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But here's what's interesting. When we talk about children resembling their parents, we often begin to talk about their resemblance when they're very, very young in superficial terms. Right, so I don't know if this is true kind of across the board, but uh, in Asian culture, uh, I remember when I had my son, whenever kind of uh, Asian adults uh, that are older than me would, would look at uh, my son, they would often talk about how, oh, he, has, uh, he, has, he looks exactly like you. Or he looks kind of like you, but he looks more like your wife, but he has your eyes you know, good luck to him and, you know, all of those things, right? So they would often talk about the resemblance of my children to myself in superficial terms, in terms of what they look like. But as we see our children get older, as we see them get older, we see that the resemblance becomes, for better or for worse, more profound, and we begin to see their resemblance being rooted in their behavior, being rooted in their kind of general disposition, and often their outlook on life. And speaking about this negatively, at our men's ministry gathering Friday night, we talked about this in terms of generational sins, right? The kind of resemblance, uh, specifically in our discussion on Friday night, uh, the kind of resemblance that we have of our fathers uh, that tend to plague and hurt us as men, some of the destructive patterns that are passed down on us that we resemble. And so see, our earthly fathers, we may have both their strengths and their weaknesses that are passed down. But with our heavenly father, because he is absolutely without sin, without blemish, without imperfection, the more we cling to him, the more time we spend with him, the more we grow in our intimacy and affection for him, his perfection is what will naturally be passed down to us that we will begin to resemble more and more. And again, as it is true with earthly children, it may start out superficial as you begin your relationship with God. But the more you grow in him, the more that resemblance will be profound and will grow deeper and deeper. And that's what verse 48 is referring to when he says, uh, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not meant to be taken kind of dogmatically to say we need to achieve perfection uh, if you want to get to heaven. No, the call is, the goal is for you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect and which you will inevitably be as you grow in intimacy with him. Be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. Why? Because your father is the kind of God who makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now I need to make a point here because this is where the Bible can get really confusing. Because this passage will make you think that God loves everybody equally. Because if you, but if you uh, look at the Bible, 
there are parts of it where it says God hates those who do evil and loves those who do good, right? There are parts of the Bible where it says God has reserved his love for, uh, for those who are specifically called out to be his people, right? And this is where so much confusion comes in, right? And this is where we get really kind of confusing, unhelpful cliches like God loves everybody unconditionally, Right? That may be a little bit kind of innocuous, but this is also where we get dangerous heresies like universalism that tells us that everybody goes to heaven because after all, God loves everybody. So which one is true? Does God love everybody or does he only love some people? Now, this is where we have to understand that there are different categories of love when it comes to God. And this is what we need to know to apply and understand this text clearly. Because the way in which God reveals himself to us, get this, is as a personal God. God is transcendent, but he decides to communicate his attributes to us in ways that we can understand. And that includes his love. And so from experience, we know that there are different kinds of love. So you may hear me say... Right, with, with genuine uh, enthusiasm and excitement, you may hear me say, man, I love my wife. But you also might hear me say under the same breath, did you watch the latest episode of WandaVision? Man, I love that show. Now when I say I love my wife and the latest episode of WandaVision, they better not mean the same thing. My wife will have huge problems with me. Be sleeping on the couch until the Lord returns. Right? Similarly, in the same way, God who is love has different categories of love that he expresses. And here, specifically, he's talking about the kind of forbearing, providential love that he pours out on all people. Right? It is a separate category from the kind of redeeming love that is reserved for his saints. It's not a love that is contingent upon our obedience or morality. It's love that is indiscriminate. So again, when we are called to love, we're commanded to do so because that's what God does. When we serve, when we care for, when we extend kindness to those that we would call our enemies, that's when we're emulating and growing in our resemblance to God, Jesus would say. To love indiscriminately. And you know, this kind of indiscriminate love, out of all the different kinds of loves that exist in the world, is probably the most counterintuitive to the way the world understands love. See, we're called to love our enemies because that's what it means to grow in our resemblance to the Father. But the second reason is also true. We're called to love our enemies because that's what it means to be different from the world. Look at verse 46 to 47. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Right? See, there is much love in the world to celebrate, right? Romantic love between two people, parental love uh, from a parent to their child, love between two friends, right? There is a lot of love to celebrate in the world. There's no denying that, but the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here is the kind of love that can only come from God, the love for enemy. 
Because see, in general, I, I really hesitate to th- say things like, you know, the world has no resource for, you know, this or that kind of thing that is talked about in the Bible. Because there's so much good in the world apart from the truth of the gospel that Christians ought to rightly celebrate because of God's common grace to them. But if there's one thing that I can unequivocally say that the world has no resource, resource for is this kind of love. Love for one's enemy is the one thing that the world cannot replicate apart from drawing its resources from the truth of the gospel. And here's what this means. Practically, the degree to which our church is going to be a witness to the world around us is the degree to which we exhibit our love for those who disagree with us. Those who persecute us, those who are our enemies. Now, don't get me wrong, works of justice, they're important, crucial. Moral reform, right, being good moral people, absolutely important in displaying the holiness of God to the watching world. But you know what? You're going to find works of justice out in the world. There are philanthropic organizations, charity organizations that do that work so much better than the church without claiming to follow Christ that we need to learn from. I know personally many Christians, or many non-Christians, those who do not claim to follow Christ, who live morally upright lives that exhibit the kinds of attributes of God that I want to emulate myself. But here's one area again where the church can absolutely be a witness to the world the kind of witness that will confound the world and move them to repentance and acknowledgement of the otherworldly power of the gospel, one that is utterly unique from the rest of the world. It is our love for our enemies. What would it look like then for you to extend kindness to your insufferable boss even as you are courageous and standing up against the toxic culture of your workplace? What would it look like for you to extend unreserved service to your neighbors who you know stand on the opposite aisle when it comes to all of the issues that you care about tremendously? What would it look like for us to care for the LGBTQ community right here in Ridgewood even as we are courageous in standing up for the biblical vision of sexuality? What would that look like? See, these are the kinds of things that will make our church stand out and be peculiar in the eyes of the world. And it will be all for the gospel, right? It's not going to be on the issues that we stand up for. Let me say this very clearly. Not on the issues that we stand up for, but who we decide to love. That is a high calling, my friends. One that Jesus gives to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, how in the world are we going to live it out? Real quickly, let's look at the last point, how we can obey. Now, here's what I find interesting just as I was studying this passage in my own heart. Whenever we talk about the enemies that we have and the persecution that we tend to endure, and I have to be honest with you, giving you a kind of peek uh, behind the curtain a little bit. For about 80% of my sermon preparation, I automatically assume that I'm the good guy. Right? We often think that about ourselves, don't we? Right? We're the innocent ones that have enemies all around us. 
We're the enemies that are oppressed. We're the ones that are receiving persecution from the evil forces that are out there for the good that we are standing up for. Rarely do we reflect on whether we've been the ones who are the bad guys, the villains. But Jesus, time and time again, flips the script on us, doesn't he? As, as uh, Miss Megan uh, shared with us, he is such a wonderful teacher. Because Jesus constantly rails against the religious people. We find him constantly dining with and complimenting the Gentiles and the tax collectors. So remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example, in Luke 10? He's telling this parable to the Jewish people that were around him. And we see a man that is robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And we see a priest and a Levite, both undoubtedly religious and devout men, law-abiding men, pass him by. But who comes by and takes care of him? It is the Samaritan, the one who was despised by the Jewish listeners of the parable, one who would have been considered their hated enemy. See, Jesus is constantly flipping the script to show us that we aren't always the one who are receiving persecution. We're often the ones that are doling it out. And see, here's the key to exhibiting and embodying the kind of love that Jesus is talking about in this passage. As I talked about earlier, when we see Jesus being persecuted to his death, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's not enough to see that kind of enemy love as an example for us to follow. Because as long as you see that love as an example to follow, you'll never know the forgiveness that he's crying out to the Father for. Because that love will always be for somebody else and not personally for you. But when you understand, when you understand that you and I, that we are the enemy of God, that we are the persecutor and the oppressor, when we can see ourselves in the crowd mocking, jeering, and beating Jesus to a pulp, and, and then we see Jesus crying out to the Father for, for, for our forgiveness. That's when we can receive the kind of love that will change us from the inside out. Right? What kind of love do you and I deserve from God? Do we deserve the kind of redeeming, elective love? Or is the best that we can hope for, for the kind of general love that he gives out to all people? when we understand that we are not deserving of that kind of love from God, that's when we'll be humbled enough to know that we're no different from our enemies. The ones that persecute us, that's when we'll be confident enough at the same time to be okay not having to defend ourselves at every turn, feel like we are being slighted with every disagreement that we have when we understand that God of the universe and Jesus Christ was willing to lay down his life for us. I often hear the question, like, if we don't stand up for God, who will? And oftentimes the answer that I think of is, he doesn't need anybody to stand up for him. God is God of the universe. No, it's more often the reflection of our own heart that is insecure and saying, I'm losing my turf. Church, this is the kind of love that is going to change the world. Moral reform, social justice, all of that is important, don't get me wrong, but the gospel message lived out, the kind of love that's told about by the Apostle Paul to us, 
where he says, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That love is what is going to change the world. Our job is not to change each other's minds. Our job is not to change the mind of the world. I'm not saying civic involvement is a bad thing. But the one thing, the one thing that is going to change the world and the focus of our ministry here at the church is to love our enemies, to consider them to be our neighbors and to love them as we love ourselves. And the first step and the most crucial step of all is to receive that enemy love of God shown in Jesus Christ for ourselves. And so by the grace of God, And the working of his mighty Holy Spirit, may this be true of our church family here today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this command. What a difficult command to be thinking of our enemies, the ones that we hate, the ones that we disagree with. But to extend kindness to them, to care for them as we care for our own. Father God, we know that this is impossible apart from the working of your Holy Spirit in us, helping us realize the truth of the gospel. And so we ask for your spirit to come now to change our hearts, turn our hearts and our minds towards you so that we may begin to resemble you in the way that we love. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please stand as we close with our final song.